Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Uh, If you're around Christians for very long, you're going to hear somebody talking about Melchizedek. He's a somewhat obscure character from the book of Genesis. He's like a a king slash priest. Uh, He ruled over Salem, also known as Jerusalem. Abraham met him. Melchizedek blessed him. Uh, And that probably would have been it for Melchizedek had David not written Psalm 110. David brought Melchizedek out of uh, obscurity and into the light of messianic expectation. Christians and Jews have struggled to understand who this guy is, what he means. Uh, Some people think and and read into the text that this is a special appearance of Jesus Christ in in Genesis 14 when he meets Abraham. Uh, One of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which is, uh, you probably know the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you don't, they're these ancient scrolls that were found in a cave, you know, relatively recent in history, and and we're learning a lot about the ancient world and interpretation. One of those has a a commentary on Leviticus, and in it, there's a big section on Melchizedek, and it says things like, Melchizedek wasn't just a a person, essentially, it paints him like he's this angel who's going to come back at the end of days and and judge other angels. So so there's been lots of ideas about who Melchizedek was. Uh, People think maybe he's part of an ancient secret order of priests out there. Uh, Maybe maybe you think he's like like Doctor Who, like this Time Lord guy who just flies around and appears here and here and here. Look, you you can think lots of things, but I think the best commentary on Melchizedek in the Scriptures is Scriptures itself, uh, really the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews in the New Testament, it quotes this psalm a lot. It says a lot. And essentially, this is what it says. Jesus is is like Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't just a king. He wasn't just a priest. Jesus is like that. Jesus is both. Melchizedek just sort of shows up in the story. He doesn't have a birth or death record. And and Jesus is kind of like that because he's the, the second person of the Trinity. He's God himself without beginning or end. He's forever. Jesus is a priest king forever, perpetually. So, so here's what's going on. I just kind of want to handle some of this Melchizedek, Melchizedek stuff to help us just jump into this psalm, because I know it can be a, a mental distraction. Uh, but Melchizedek seems mysterious to so many people, and he is a little bit, uh, because we're focused on trying to f- figure out who Melchizedek was. Whenever the point of David writing this was to tell us nothing about Melchizedek, It was to tell us something about the Messiah. Melchizedek was an analogy. He was a signpost. He was telling us something about who the Messiah would be, what he would be like. And the amazing thing that we're going to focus on this morning is that the Messiah would be a priest king. He'd be a priest king. That's what Psalm 110 prophesies, that Jesus 
is going to be our priest king. Prophesied priest king. That's the three words we're going to look at today as we work through the psalm. Prophesied priest king. So point one, prophesied. We'll look at verses one and two for this. Jesus was prophesied because Psalm 110 is a prophecy. Look at verse one. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, when I was locked away in my study uh, this past week going over this psalm, I was, I was really, really shocked to find that the original Hebrew doesn't simply say, the Lord says to my Lord. It, it actually uses this prophetic construction, like this little special thing. And more woodenly, you would translate it something like, an oracle of Yahweh to my Lord, or, or an utterance, or a declaration of the Lord, all caps. It's a little phrase that's used 254 times in the Old Testament, and always in prophetic moments where God is revealing something that he's about to do in the world. And when Jesus quotes these, these verses here to the, the Pharisees in the Gospels, he said that David was speaking in the spirit when he said, the Lord says to my Lord. The Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, it was writing down a prophecy. He was writing down a prophecy. Yahweh was making a divine prophetic utterance uh, to David's own Lord. King David wrote this, and, and the second Lord there, that, that's somebody that David himself is looking to, a coming Messiah, a future king whom the Lord is speaking to. So what's the nature of the, the prophecy? What is it actually going to tell us about the Messiah? Well, it's messianic. Uh, it has to do with God's Messiah, his anointed king. In Greek, the word for Messiah is the Christ. And the Christ was the king who was going to come and he was going to vanquish all the enemies of the, of, of, uh, the Lord. He was going to make this world a, a better place, kind of restore it to how it was before the fall. He was going to bring, bring ultimate peace, real peace, like a really good king, like, like the kind of ruler that we could, we could barely dream of. But no king in the Old Testament ever lived up to this. King Solomon, and his name means peace, but, but he didn't really bring peace. And, and that's where Psalm 110 comes in. Because look at what it actually says about uh, the Messiah. Look at what it prophesies. Verse 1, he'd sit at God's right hand until his enemies were under his feet. And then verse 2, his scepter would rule out uh, or, or would go out from Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem, and his enemies would be in submission. So, so this is crazy, and you may miss it your first time reading it, but, but look at where the king's ruling. He's ruling from God's right hand as well as from Zion. This is a, a heaven mixed with earth sort of kingdom that the Lord is prophesying here. God himself would build this kingdom and deliver it to the Messiah. That's what's going on. And here's what this means. The earthly kingdom of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament was not the goal. God was promising a heavenly kingdom. Now, sometimes when we think of the word heavenly, we think, oh, yeah, it's just like that other place, clouds, you know, kind of like soft and mysterious. But, but, but that's not really what's going on here. It's a heavenly kingdom in that it has the heavenly power to come down and change this place. To be truly heavenly minded is to expect the Lord's changing power to come down into this world. So what? Maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not somebody who's really interested in ancient prophecies and history and stuff. And maybe this actually sounds a little infantile or naive to you, that we would expect the Lord to really come and change this world. Why should you care about this prophecy? 
You should care, because humanity's not doing so well. Our modern-day prophets, those leaders in science, technology, politics, they give us lots of information, and even if you discredit most of it, uh, the warnings are still pretty uh, prevalent. How's our society? How are the homeless? How are the ill? How's the health of the planet? How's COVID? How's sex trafficking? How are the rainforests? This world has serious problems going on. And we can say little things to make us feel better, like, well, education will solve everything. Well, we've been pretty educated lately. It hasn't solved everything. Uh, no struggle, no progress. Well, the struggle takes lives. It's very painful. Or, or maybe pain is just a part of life. Have you heard that? Well, it wasn't always supposed to be. You know, like, we, can, we can say these little things, but deep, deep down it hurts to be here. Life hurts. This world is suffering. And none of the little platitudes that we can say can really take that pain away and really fix the problems that we face. So you've got a choice. You can look at the world's problems. You can say, it's not that bad. You can slap a platitude on it. Something's going to fix it. And you can walk away. Or you can stop and you can listen to what this ancient text has to say. Because this text promises something better. And if there's a better option, it's worth listening to. This text promises a real solution, a heavenly power that can fight evil and fix this world. And for the Christian, it is your duty to pray a prayer like Psalm 110, that you can say, rule King Jesus amongst your enemies. Fix this world. That's this prophecy. Point two, Jesus was a prophesied priest, the prophesied priest. We'll look at his priestly nature now in verses 3 and 4. Hebrew poetry, it often puts like the most important stuff in the middle of a text. It kind of like you put the meat in the middle of a sandwich. And, and what do we find here at the middle of Psalm 110? What do you get? Uh, you get the priestly stuff. And this actually tells us a lot about the Messiah. It's a hint that the Messiah, that, that, that long-awaiting king who would, who would win the great battle, his battle is going to be a priestly battle. It's not going to be the normal expected thing with, with swords and horses. It's not going to be that. There's going to be something priestly about it, a priestly victory, and even a priestly army. Look at verse 3. This, this army prepared for the Messiah. Uh, look at what it says. It says, they are offering themselves freely. Now, if you know the Bible, this could come as a uh, shock because most of the time when you read about God's people, are they offering themselves freely? No. Uh, they are stubborn. They're selfish. They're sinful. They're rebellious against God. But look at them now. Spread up for him, willing. And they aren't dressed in armor here, as you might expect. They're dressed in, what does it say? Holy garments. That is like the priestly clothes. That's not what you wear in a battle. That's what you wear to go to the temple to worship the Lord. And then there's tons of them. Look at, look at what it says in uh, verse 4, I think. Uh, no, I mean verse 3. It says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, I had to look this up. This is like a, a very poetic way of saying that uh, God's going to give the, the, the Messiah a multitude of people. 
And just like the dew of the morning, uh, they will be spread out before him like, like the dew on the grass at daybreak, you know, when the sun hits and it's all beautiful. That's God's people that he's, he's giving to God's king, a willing, beautiful, holy people. What about the king himself? Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order or in the manner of that, that uh, priest king from Genesis. So God here in verse 4 is making an, an earth-shattering promise uh, to the ancient Jewish world. He's really shaking things up. He's saying that the priest is going to be like Melchizedek. He's going to be a king priest. Well, well, Jesus the king comes from the line of Judah, not the line of Levites. He's not part of the Aaronic priesthood. In fact, this text is promising that the ancient priesthood is going to pass away. No more Aaronic priesthood. No more Levites. Side note, uh, you know the reason why God chose the Levites to be priests? God chose the Levites to be priests because they were the tribe that was willing to take up arms against their fellow Israelites after the golden calf incident. They were the ones who went to defend the Lord's honor. Originally, uh, God's people, Israel, it was truly to be a kingdom of priests, not just a tribe of priests. But everything will change when the Messiah comes. That's what this text promised. All his people will somehow take part in the priesthood. The sacrifices will be different too. Now, now, now you, you think maybe that, that's odd. Why would God change everything up? Like, did God really make a mistake back there whenever he was given them this big sacrifice uh, system with, with blood of rams, oxes, grain, all that stuff? Why would he come along and somehow just change the priesthood and start over? Did he make a mistake? No, it, it's this. God never intended his people to rely on animal sacrifices as their means of salvation. Those things were always to point to the coming Messiah of Psalm 110, that greater priest king. The book of Hebrews tells us that every single year, priests would enter in uh, to the, the Holy of Holies, that they would offer the same sacrifice year after year, but nothing ever changed. And that was to show that the way to God wasn't truly open yet. Every year, uh, the priest was to metaphorically take all the sins of the people and to put it on a goat, the, the scapegoat, and send it out into the woods. And that was to symbolize that, that God's people's sins were not really taken care of. They were kind of put off because that greater sacrifice was yet to come. See, the Old Testament in and of itself is not a finished work it had an expectation to it. It was expecting the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Messiah. A Messiah who would take away their sins. A Messiah who would actually make them the people who didn't sin anymore, who didn't need sacrifices. Because God's people right now and back then, we, we, need, we need it because we don't offer ourselves freely, as verse 3 says. That's why they and we need a priest king. And actually, this idea of a priest-king uh, continues in the New Testament. Uh, Act, Acts chapter 5 tells us that whenever Christ was exalted to the right hand of God, he was exalted as our prince, like our king, our ruler, but it was also as our priestly savior. 
Uh, the, the Acts says that, that he's there to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Like, he went up there to give us forgiveness. Like, that's what he's doing. That's part of his intercessory work. He's called an intercessor between us and God. And now this is really important, so, so, so tune in for this. Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was also sacrificed in, in God's, like, holy presence. And it was done to purify us, our consciences from dead works, so that we could make ourselves truly offer ourselves to him. God did something to change us, and he's working that out in us. He's promised us something through Christ. And, and, and this is beautiful because that's what he's up there doing. He's at work. Now, some of you may think of God uh, up there being like, uh, I can't wait to wipe these people out. They're so annoying. And then Jesus is over here saying, oh, please, Father. I know she's been really annoying lately. I don't know. He's just awful. But won't you please, please forgive him, please? Have you ever thought that way about Jesus and his work? Because that's not what's happening at all. God himself has put Jesus on the throne as a priest king because God is declaring to the whole world and to you that Jesus made the final sacrifice for sins, for your sins. And he's taken your place and now he has put up for you to look at and say, that is all I need. There is nothing more because my sacrifice is in the most important place in the universe, the throne of God. There will be many voices, many inside your head and heart that say, that's not enough. Jesus is not enough for you. God is really upset with you. But what has the Lord said to you? He said to Jesus, you are my priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, because you have saved these people forever. And he's put it on the throne. Draw near to that throne of grace. Revelation describes this king as a slain lamb. Jesus is your high priest forever, making payment for your sins, making sinners clean in the eyes of God. Doesn't that make you want to serve him more? Knowing that you're safe, knowing that the sacrifice is done, don't you want to draw near to him after you've seen what he's done? You know, many of you walk around, myself included, feeling awful like all the time because I just, and, and we just don't do enough. <laughs> And if you think you don't do enough, you know, in one sense, you're right. But you can't do enough. Not yet. Do you want to serve him? Do you want to give yourself freely to God this year? It's not going to happen through your own efforts. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps on this one. And you know, you've probably heard that before, but you and me need to hear that again. You know, if, if you really could pull your bootstraps up and really, like, make yourself pleasing to God, Jesus wouldn't have needed to do what he did. But that's what he did. He did it for you. You know, Isaiah says, even our best of works are what? They are filthy rags. You know what that means? That means that the Jesus on the throne had to pay for your good deeds too. All those good things that you think will make you better with God, he, he, had, to, he had to die for those too because everything stained with sin. The only way for you to freely offer yourself to God is to freely accept his priestly work, what he's done. Put your trust in him. You're safe. This is going to be an ongoing thing for you Christians, uh, but you will only enjoy your service to God to the degree that you are thankful for that sacrifice, for his priestly work. Okay, point three. 
Jesus is our prophesied priest, king, king. This will be verses 5 to 7. Imagine a good king. What's he like? Uh, Is he he noble like Aragorn? Is he beautiful? Uh, Does he have a strong castle? Does he he ride out to uh, battle with a sword at his side? Or is is he really good at diplomacy? What's he like? Is he anything like the king that we see here? Because maybe the Lord's idea of a good king needs to shape our idea of a good king. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at this king's right hand. Imagine a national ruler who fears God and who actually depends on God for help. Imagine that for a second. It says, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This king doesn't get stopped or slowed down by evil in the world. You know, like our politics work so slowly against evil, and oftentimes they advance it. But this king isn't slowed down. He, he plows through evil like a, like a snow plow through snow. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Evil cannot live in his presence. Evil dies when it meets this king. And it says, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Uh, That's one way of rendering that little phrase. Um, It more literally is translated something like, he will shatter the head. It doesn't say chiefs, it says head, singular. He will shatter the head. Sound familiar? Uh, If if you read Genesis 3.15, there's a promise, one to come, who will crush the head of the serpent. Here we see the promised enemy. I mean, the promised victory over the enemy. Uh, the one who will come and defeat evil once and for all. Like that evil that was at the beginning, it will not last forever. There will be an end point. That's what this promises. Look at verse 7. After this happens, uh, he will drink from the brook in peace, and he will lift up his head. That is, his reign will be established forever. Like this is a good king, and his goodness is going to keep on rolling there's no going back. You know how often in life, uh, relationships or, or technologies, we get excited about them, but then they eventually kind of get boring or, or let us down? Not so with the Messiah. He's truly going to make this world a better place. Now, I don't want to gloss over or ignore or pretend like all the words here are nice and fuzzy. So let's talk about what he says about the corpses. I don't like being harsh. Like, I don't pl- take pleasure in, in talking about this subject. I just want to say that up front. Um, maybe I, I, sh- I should, but it, it makes me uncomfortable, th- these next lines, because of how serious this is. This is serious. The Christ is at war. He's filling the nations with corpses. That's what's promised. In Revelation chapter 17, the kings of the earth are said to make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will conquer them. Jesus isn't coming out of the blue to to, to wage war against the earth. The earth is currently waging war against Christ. And and here's something important that that we need to to remember. Um, There are no uninvolved people in this conflict. There is no neutral party. There is no spiritual Switzerland that you can be a part of. There are are no friends of Christianity. You can't be uninvolved in the war against Christ. And what the scriptures tell us is that you and me, either right now if you're not a believer or sometime in the past if you have put your faith in Christ, we have been enemies of the cross. 
We have waged war against the Lord. But he will win. He will fight. We have to know that we are on the right side of this. We have to lay down arms if we are in opposition to him. Maybe this side of Jesus, though, rubs you the wrong way. You're really comfortable with, like, the nice forgiving Jesus, but the Jesus who actually rides into battle kind of bothers you. Maybe he sounds judgmental and mean, and if you were a person, you would, you would talk bad about him. But as much as we might want to think that way, it just doesn't hold up whenever you consider the whole of Christ, who he is. Yes, he's a king, but he is also a priest, and we've talked a lot about his priestly nature. And what does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus is more gracious than anybody we could imagine. Yet here, we see he also will not compromise with evil. He is merciful and he is tough. And both of those things are good. The language of death in this text may bother us, but I want you to know Jesus is not afraid of death. In fact, what what does he do? The scriptures say that he tasted death for us. That was his priestly role. They also say that that he will come back and the last enemy that Jesus will fight is death. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. That's his kingly role. He will have victory over everything wicked and broken and even death. And if you don't accept his death in a priestly role, then you will have to face his death, the death that he brings as a king. So what do we do with all this? I'm not trying to scare anybody here. I'm not trying to like motivate you with fear or anything. But, but how do Resurrection Church and, and, and Friends Gathered, how do we live out Psalm 110? The, the truth is that, that some of you should fear. Some of you should toss and turn tonight because you, you haven't got what it takes to stand before God because you haven't accepted Christ, because you haven't trusted him, because you're trying to give him these other offerings. You're, you're trying to say, I'm, 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 this, I'm good enough for this. And you're denying Christ's priestly role. You should fear because if it costs Jesus his life, then what will it cost you? But I suspect that many of you, you know, you're probably the people who'll be texting me later, and it's like, you're, you're not the people that, whose consciences I wanted to prick, but you're the people with tender consciences, and you think that you're, you're pretty rough as it is, and, and you really need help. To you, you must look to Jesus as priest. The ruler is also your priest. You don't need to toss and turn tonight. That's why this psalm is so important, because you need to believe that Jesus stands on the throne. He sits there, and he looks at you, and he gives grace. I mean, lift up your eyes. Who do you see on the throne that will say what really happens in your life, if you are in good standing or not? Who's sitting on the throne? Look at him. It's a slain lamb. And if you were to look him in the eyes, what would he say to you if you've trusted in him? Scripture says that he says, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Put your trust in him. Fear not. Let's pray. Father, You have sworn and will not change your mind. Jesus is our priest and our king. Let us not squander such a gift. Help us to embrace it and grow in loving gratitude for the rest of our days. 
Through Jesus our Savior we pray. Amen.